Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Good. Getting in the Christmas spirit. Yes. Not exactly sure when this episode will be airing. So, so yeah, Merry Christmas to everyone out there who's listening to the show. So Merry Christmas, everybody. Mary Chrysler. <laughs> I'm referencing a vine. Okay, I don't know what you're referencing. A vine. Okay. What are we I'm watching old. today? <laughs> I'm older than you. What are we watching today, Ben? Uh, today, Sarah, we're watching The Corpse Vanishes from 1942. Merry Corpsemas. There we go. See? Now, now, now we got it. Yeah. So this is the fourth of Bella Lugosi's Monogram 9 that he made for producer Sam Katzman at Monogram Pictures. Uh, If you want to hear more about Sam Katzman or why Lugosi signed his contract to Monogram Pictures, we talk about that in our episode on The Invisible Ghost, which was the first of Lugosi's Monogram 9. That's episode 85. And um, these films sort of have this identity as the Monogram 9 because they're kind of considered... um, Bad? I was going to use the word notorious in infamous? infamous in Lugosi's career as kind of like a nader. Um, a nader? Yeah, nader. N-A-D-I-R. It's like a low point. The lowest point. As opposed to zenith, which is the highest point. Oh, nadir and zenith. <laughs> this is what happens when you only see words in print. Tell me about the movie. So, The Corpse Vanishes has the reputation... Not necessarily as the best of the Monogram Nine. Um, We've already seen that. Um, Oh, the Invisible Ghost? Yes. Um, It also doesn't have the reputation for being the worst of the Monogram Nine. That's still in our future. Rather, it has the reputation as the most batshit crazy in terms of story. So there's bats in this. No. The Corpse Vanishes has a very... um, Has a story that a lot of observers tend to regard as being divorced from concepts such as reality (laughs) or cause and effect or um, logic. Is this purposeful or is it just because it's a poverty row? Yeah. The film was written by Harvey Gates, whose film career as a writer stretched back to 1913 and would rack up 222 writing credits by the time of his death in 1948. You've never heard of any of the movies he wrote. Okay. That's kind of sad, you know, like 222, that's a huge number, and I haven't heard of any of them except for Corpse Vanishes, which I also had not heard of until this episode. Yeah, there's nothing notable in that filmography. Oh, that poor dude. The director's kind of a similar story. Uh, He had 91 directing credits between 1927 and 1954. Uh, This film was his 25th feature film as a director. His name is Wallace Fox, and he had a career that primarily consisted of helming low-budget westerns. Okay. 
that's a similar trajectory for a lot of these horror directors, especially yeah. now that we're getting into horror as a B-movie genre. Yeah, it's it's sort of what you can kind of see is like, if westerns were the B-movie genre of the 30s, horror is sort of the B-movie genre of the 40s, and then you get to science fiction is the B-movie genre of the 50s, right? Yeah. So co-starring with Lugosi in this movie as his wife is actress Elizabeth Russell, a 25-year-old part-time actress and model. How old is Bella Lugosi at this point? Oh, he is probably 60 or 61, maybe? That's great. She's actually playing a character who's much older, and the fact that she looks young is, like, the plot of the movie. Oh, okay, cool. Well, at least it's, you know, for a purpose, rather than just the usual Hollywood thing. Yeah. The Corpse Vanishes was her fifth appearance in a movie, and her first time in a starring role of any kind. Uh, her performance here would gain the attention of RKO producer Val Luton, who would use her in small roles throughout his films. Oh, nice. So this is a little bit of a small break for her then. Yes. The romantic leads in this film are played by Luana Walters and Tristram Coffin. Walters was a rodeo horse rider who was scouted for being an actress at a show in Palm Springs. Her riding skill won her a lot of parts in B-movie westerns, as you might expect. Her most notable credit to modern audiences might be as the first actress to play Superman's Kryptonian mother, Lara, in the 1948 Superman serial. Oh, neat. So Tristram Coffin, also known as just Tris Coffin, uh, he was also a B-movie and serial veteran. Uh, he's probably best known as playing the character Rocket Man in the 1949 Republic serial King of the Rocket Men, uh, which was one of the principal inspirations of the Dave Stevens comic The Rocketeer. Did he have a pretty big career in horror? With a last name like Coffin. <laughs> no, actually not. Um, just a big career in TV and B-movies and serials. Okay. Uh, for example, another noteworthy performance uh, of his was in the first episode of the Lone Ranger television series, where he played Captain Dan Reed, the older brother of the Lone Ranger and commander of the group of Texas Rangers who all but one get killed in the Lone Ranger's origin story. Damn. Um, a welcome reappearance in the cast is Angelo Rosito, uh, who's most memorable for his role in Freaks. Um, he's oh. the little person who sort of carries the big goblet down the table in the dinner scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he appears in this film in a small role. That's sort of about it for people of note in this movie. The rest of the cast is sort of summed up by they were workers. Uh, <laughs> you know, they appeared in things. Sure, um, sure. The Corpse Vanishes was released on May 8th, 1942. It is, perhaps unsurprisingly, in the public domain. So there's a lot of different DVD releases of it out there. Um, they're all pretty bad. Like, there isn't, <laughs> there isn't, like, a good restored edition of this movie. Just stay away from the alpha video one. If you're looking for it on streaming, because it's in the public domain, it's, you know, all over the place. Um, we've linked to a watchable version on YouTube. Uh, on our YouTube playlist. It is also actually available in a semi-official release on iTunes to rent for a couple bucks. It also has the odd distinction of being the first movie on our show that was covered on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh. 
Uh, it was the fifth episode of the series' first season on Comedy Central. Okay. They covered this pretty early then. Yeah. Um, I think they were on, like, you know, local public access television for, like, a couple of years before Comedy Central picked them up. And, yeah, this was the, the fifth episode was doing The Corpse Vanishes. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't hit a movie that was done on that show before now, but... I haven't seen much of Mystery Science Theater 3000, but I feel like most of what they watch comes from, like, 50s. And they do 50s science fiction type things more For often. Sure. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, I do think that, like, the primary sort of qualifier for what got on that show, other than it being bad, was just in the public domain. So yeah, we that didn't too. have to, you know, pay rights for it or anything. I mean, I'm not... This might surprise some of our listeners, but, like, I'm not a big fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fine enough show. I think most of my frustration with it actually has more to do with, like, the sociological effect that it's had <laughs> in the sense that people now think that, like, yelling out jokes during a movie is, like, acceptable behavior, um, regardless of whether you're going to see, like, a revival showing of an older film, or if you're going to see, like, a modern new movie at, like, a movie theater, people just think that's what you're supposed to do now, and they forget that, like, the people on Mystery Science Theater 3000 have writers, so their jokes are good. (laughs) But regardless of whether the jokes are good or not, I don't want to hear it. Like, shut the fuck up, I'm watching a movie. Yeah. So, anyways, um, but yeah, I just thought I'd point that out, because I'm just kind of surprised that we haven't run into them. Hmm. Yet. Maybe um, if we were happened to hit our goal on Patreon to do horror-adjacent episodes, maybe we would watch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. That feels like so bizarrely circle jerky to like... Circle wa- jerky? <laughs> yeah, to like watch a thing that's about some people watching a thing. Like, like at what point, it's where do you, meta. yeah, like at what point do you stop, right? Does but see, like, if we do that, and then the Mystery Science Theater 3000 folks listen to that episode of the podcast, and then they were like, ah, no. we should watch no. Corpse Vanishes again, and revive no. some of these things, and no. it would just complete, yeah, okay. No. Okay. No. Nope. So, so folks, if you would like to watch along with us, you can find a link to the watchable YouTube version on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Corpse Vanishes, directed by Wallace Fox from 1942. See you on the other side, everybody. back everyone to scream scene we just finished watching the corpse vanishes from 1942 directed by wallace fox sarah what did you think of this movie i came up with a better title for it that's not surprising the corpse bride yes that is a better title (laughs) i i really enjoyed this movie it's fun i think it falls into the same kind of category that we felt with Um, Devil Bat and Invisible Ghost of it being kind of like not objectively good, 
but really fun and because of that like how low the budget is and how like low the stakes are on these like poverty row B movies you kind of get the feeling that they can kind of go a little like wackier maybe isn't the right word but like this movie's buck wild is what i'm trying to say like it's kind of a crazy movie and part of that is like it it kind of goes for it in some of the horror stuff a bit more than like some of the a pictures we've seen but also like it just it feels a lot pulpier that's what i'd say yeah. it's very pulpy yeah i i think this movie's a lot of fun in some ways there's kind of a breath of fresh air and it's interesting because when you think Poverty Row B-movie. You think some tired old tropes. And this movie has them. Mm-hmm. But it's also, like, refreshing in different ways. Like, with a awesome Lois Lane-type protagonist. Yeah, I think that's something we can talk about a little later. Um, because that's one of my big questions about this movie is, like, is it feminist or is it sexist? I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't so, think it's trying to be anything. No. To be completely um, honest. No, it's not just, at all. It's like, it's just nice, you know? When, when like, you have so many movies where it's just like, yeah, the women are either not there or they're just, you know, shuffled to the side. It's like, oh, sweet, we don't have to just follow the, like, male protagonist who, like, blunders through and is the comedic relief as well. And, yeah, it's just, it had some interesting new things to bring in. Nothing new. Or revolutionary, or anything really to say? Yeah, I don't think there was anything that this movie was doing was actually new. There were some things it was doing that were kind of new to the horror genre, or just, like, hadn't been done for a while in the horror genre. But this movie definitely is, like, a collection of different tropes sewn together. And I think where the movie gets interesting and fun is how bad and mismatched that sewing job is in places <laughs> but let's let's talk about yeah, what's about yeah tell me what it's about so brides keep dying specifically like at the altar yeah and <laughs> they keep getting their bodies stolen immediately afterwards this has happened four times our protagonist is patricia hunter and she is the society columnist for The Chronicle. Uh, where this movie is set exactly is vague. Somewhere in America. Um, well, they keep referring to, like, upstate. Like, he lives upstate. So I feel like it's a New York thing. So that's the only, I've only ever heard upstate in reference to upstate New York. Yeah, but I think upstate is just, like, a general term for, like, the, like north of here in a state. But, I, but you're right. I've never heard anyone use it. Like, I never hear, like... It's like, New York the city and then New York the state. Yes, which is north of the city. So that's probably why you hear it. But you're right, I've never heard of, like, upstate Texas. But still, (laughs) the movie never uses any place names. We'll put it that way. So um, she has a photographer, uh, Sandy, who is the film's comic relief, kind of, for the, like, two or three scenes the movie remembers he's in it. Uh, And I actually recognized his actor, Um, He's played by Vince Barnett, and I didn't recognize him from anything that we've seen on Scream Scene. It turned out I knew him from the original 1932 version of Scarface with Paul Muni, where he's kind of the, like, bumbly, doesn't-know-English, Italian mobster comic relief. Boris Karloff is also in that film. That's true. 
So, they've been covering these bride corpse disappearances for the newspaper and trying to figure out, like, what the connection is and what's going on. So there's a marriage that's going to be happening, the Wentworth marriage, and the police and the DA have, you know, got the whole place on lockdown. Like, they're, they're, they're not getting through this time. And, of course, Pat and Sandy go to, like, see what happens. And, of course, um, this is where we find out that what's causing these brides to just collapse dead at the altar is this bride gets a gift of an orchid to wear, uh, on the day of the wedding, and she just kind of presumes it's a gift from the groom, and she wears it, and she passes out. And, At the altar. Yes. And they get her body into, like, the hearse to take to the morgue, and it's, like, escorted by cops, but the cops get, like, peeled off to go investigate, like, a burning car on the side of the road, which enables Bella Lugosi and his henchman, Mike, to... <laughs> Is that his name? Yes, that's the the driver's name. Uh, They steal the body of this bride and put it in their hearse and drive it over to basically Bela Lugosi's character's spooky castle on top of a hill. In upstate. Yes. Bela Lugosi plays Professor Lorenz, who we'll learn later, is a botanist. Also a doctor, which those two aren't mutually exclusive also a physicist and a scientist because those are all different mutually exclusive job professions. Anyways, when they arrive with the hearse, it like comes into the, of course, weird dungeon laboratory that Professor Lorenz has under his house. We learned that Professor Lorenz, in addition to Mike, who's just kind of a dude, also has like a family... Of, like... Misfits. Yeah, like, differently abled people as servants. It's kind of like a weird... They knew that mad scientists in movies had, like, deformed assistants, like Fritz and stuff. So they've just expanded that to this whole family. They're never explained, like, why he has them, what their deal is. But they all refer to him as master, because that's what... Fritz called Frankenstein, and that's what Renfield called Dracula, so that's just what these people do. Who the family is, is there's sort of this old woman who kind of has like a bit of a witchy vibe, who's the housekeeper. Her name is Faga. And then there's her two sons, one of whom, Angel, is like this kind of... Kind of Fritzy... Kind of like, yeah, he he doesn't actually have a hunchback. He's just walking hunched over. And he and he looks almost like a burn victim. Like, he has, like... Weird, crinkly skin. He's clearly older, but in terms of his mental capacity, is clearly, like, sort of very young. Like, he um, sort of has that mind of a child, mental um, disability kind of thing about him. And he's kind of your your big grunty laborer who drags things around. And then there's Angel's brother, Toby, who's played by Angelo Rosito. So his whole thing is just that he's a little person. So that's weird. They bring the bride into the lab. And this is where we meet Professor Lorenz's wife, the Countess. I don't think she got any more name than just the Countess. Yeah. She's in, like, a corner of the lab, rocking back and forth, moaning and screaming about how she's dying and how he's got to hurry up. And so he takes this body 
and he puts a needle into it and extracts something and then puts that into like a solution with something else and then puts that in a needle and injects it into the countess and she the idea here is supposed to be that like she's all old and crone-like and this is and decrepit and this is restoring her to beauty and youth because she's played by uh elizabeth russell who's like 25 and a model uh yes and who has cheekbones that could cut glass yes and they don't really do enough with the makeup to make that clear in my opinion like decrepit crone countess is just elizabeth russell with no makeup and slightly askew hair the character is supposed to be around 70 or 80 yeah according to the characters, and she just looks like she's 70. You know, she she just looks like, oh, you're an old woman who doesn't wear makeup anymore. She looks doesn't even look 70. She looks maybe middle-aged, right? Point is, is once she gets this injection, she's young and youthful again. So clearly, this is what's going on. They're stealing these brides so that they can use them somehow. To make Botox. Yeah, to, to inject into the wife uh, to make her youthful again. She's clearly, like, youth obsessed which is kind of interesting with like Bella Lugosi being about 60 when he made this movie that like Professor Lorenz isn't using this on himself and if she's supposed to be like 70 to 80 that means that she's actually older than him it's anyways whatever this interesting things that are just happening because the movie didn't, didn't care yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly through implication basically yeah so meanwhile Pat has figured out that every single one of these brides has been wearing one of these orchids. And she's taking it around to various, like, florists, basically, and being like, hey, what's this? And finally one's able to say, hey, this is a super rare species. And turns out the dude who hybridized it is this European scientist who actually just lives upstate. And Pat's like, cool, I'll go ask him a few questions. So she takes the train up to wherever, and everybody in the town where Professor Lorenz lives kind of knows he's like a creepy old weirdo who should be avoided, except for Dr. Foster, who is this movie's default male protagonist. He is very dumb. That's, he's supposedly a doctor, and his whole deal is he's assisting Professor Lorenz with trying to cure his wife of some ailment that she has. And we never really learn what Foster thinks is wrong with her, we never really learn, like, what Foster thinks he's doing with Lorenz. It's kind of weird that Foster could be working with Lorenz and not know or realize, like, how fucking weird everything going on with Lorenz is. It's very bizarre. So it just kind of... it's. I think it's really just a plot hole, but when you watch the movie, it just makes Foster seem very dense. Um, he meets Pat because she needs a way to get to Lorenz's house, and he ends up coming across her, basically uh, walking to the house on the side of the road, and he gives her a ride there. Once she's there, she gets to meet the Countess, who we learn throughout the movie is basically just a huge bitch. <laughs> like, like, upon meeting Pat, she slaps her and is like, Get out! Get out of my house! You're not <laughs> here for any good! Like, just out of nowhere! Out of nowhere! And then later in the movie, for reasons Ben will get into... Uh, she, Pat ends up having to stay the night, and the Countess shows up and she's like, you are beautiful. 
he'll make a bride yet, and then disappears. Like, it's like, she like what is going on? She yells and snaps at, like, everybody, including her husband. Like, Elizabeth Russell decided clearly that, like, if she was going to get noticed in a movie, she had to outact Bella Lugosi. Like, that was clearly what was on her mind. Girl, you can't outact Bella Lugosi. <laughs> so, Pat is introduced by Dr. Foster to Professor Lorenz, and she asks him, like, hey, I have this rare orchid. I was told you're the guy who hybridized it. Can I ask you a few questions about it? And Lorenz makes what I consider to be, like, the number one mistake that villains make in bad movies, which is, like, he would be completely unsuspicious if he was just like, oh, yeah, that's this species. Yes, I developed it. Here's some boring scientific data about it as background for your article. Goodbye. But instead, he's, like, being all shifty, like, what, Orchid? What are you talking about? No, I've never heard of such a thing. You should go away. I don't want to have an interview. Like, that kind of thing that just makes you very suspicious. Yeah. So, the next series of events is somewhat perplexing, but... Not really. No, it's... It's per... Like, this is... A bunch of stuff starts happening that only happens because they happen in movies. And in these kind of movies. Like... Sure... After saying that he will not, you know, agree to an interview, um, Foster suggests, like, well, because his excuse is that he's very busy. Foster suggests, well, how about in the morning? So Lorenz agrees to that and then offers for Pat to stay the night, which, like, again, if you want to get her out of the way and not poking around and asking questions, just get rid of her. Now, the wife, the countess, brings this up, like, why did you have her stay the night? And Professor Lorenz is like, oh, I have a very good reason. Which turns out to be nothing. He doesn't have a good reason. Nothing ever comes of this. Pat stays the night. Foster also stays the night, which well, seems... it's like storming outside, so they might as well just both stay. I guess, but like, Foster has a car and like, lives in the village that's down the hill. It just is a little like, everyone's staying the night just because that's what happens in old Dark House movies. Which, by the way, of course this house has secret passages... So, while Pat's sleeping, Lorenz comes into her room and looks over her while she's sleeping, and then leaves, not having done anything. And then he does the same thing to Foster, for reasons. He's hypnotizing them. Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, that's why Dr. Foster doesn't remember what happened during the night. See, it, And also why Pat is, like, easily gaslit in the morning, because she's would, like, was it a dream? See, but it would make more sense if he was hypnotizing them after the events of the night happened, not before. But it's so that, like, what happens while they're asleep feels very fuzzy, you know? I, again, that feels like it would have made more sense. I would have connected those dots more if it had happened after. But, okay. So what does happen during the night... It turns out that, like, the servant family, uh, Angel and Toby and Faga, all, like, sleep together in a broom closet, basically, in, like, a secret room in the secret basement under the secret passage. And Angel, I guess, has, like, a weird... He likes to brush the corpses' hair. Yes. And it's sort of framed in this weird, like, innocent um, infatuation kind of way. Like, oh, he has, like, a crush on... Whatever, but, like, they're dead, so it's just, it's very weird. So he leaves in the middle of the night, and his brother Toby has this dialogue about, like, I know where you go in the middle of the night, the master wouldn't be happy about this, and it's just, like, it's gross. And he takes the secret passages over to Pat's room, 
and starts like brushing her hair and she wakes up and he scatters out the secret passage and she's screaming and she tries to get help and Dr. Foster won't wake up to help her and then she bangs on another door and opens it into Lorenz and the Countess's bedroom where, gasp, they sleep in coffins. (laughs) Separate coffins, mind you. This is a code movie after all. (laughs) Finally, she gets Foster awake and she's like, you know, this guy came to me in the night and I don't know what's going on and blah, blah, blah. And Foster's like, eh, like, it's nothing. You were probably dreaming. Go back to bed. If you need me, call me. And so he goes back to bed and she doesn't. She's like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this all Lois Lane style. And she finds the secret passage, which leads her down into the secret basement and Angel, like, hears her, I guess, and gets up out of bed and follows her as she's exploring around the secret basement. She manages to kind of give him the slip so that she starts following him. And then he goes to a secret room in the secret basement that is, like, basically a morgue filled with the bodies of the brides. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment here because I'm not sure... And I'm not sure if the movie's sure whether these captured brides are actually dead or not. Okay, so when they get them, they're still alive. Um, because we see one of them breathing. Mm-hmm. Despite, you know, being proclaimed dead on at scene, at which is scene. why they get him why they get an undertaker rather than a doctor. And there's talk about, you know, we'll keep them alive while they're of use to us. So it's like whatever, like, Botox beauty that they're sucking out eventually kills them. Yeah, it's it's a little weird because there's some dialogue later in the movie from Foster about how, like, they're being kept in a cataleptic state. Yeah. Um, and there's, it's also like, if if they're alive and you can, like, kind of keep them on ice, as it were, and keep drawing stuff out, then, like, why are you doing this so frequently? Like, wouldn't you keep one until you ran out and then get another one rather than have, like, five or six on ice at once? Well, they do establish a little bit later in the film that it's spring, and that's when everyone gets married. For so, sure. So you gotta do it now. You gotta sure. build up your supply. Sure, okay, I guess. But it's like, <laughs> it's all very... It's harvesting season. I guess. It's, it's just, you're just left with a lot of questions when you watch this movie. So he goes over to the... Um, wine cellar of brides, basically, and starts stroking their hair. Now, um, Lorenz has decided that Angel is basically more trouble than he's worth. He overheard that Angel woke up his guest, so he's like, this is enough. He's no longer of any use to us? Yes, exactly. Which is... So, ironically, Lorenz actually saves Pat from Angel noticing her because he kills... Angel before she can be found, and then he doesn't notice her, um, at least at first. He kills Angel, then he does, I think he does spot Pat. Well, she faints because she just saw a man get murdered. That's what it is. And then she wakes up in her bed the next morning, and everyone in the house insists to her that she just had like a weird, bad dream. And she, you know, says, but Foster, don't you remember talking to me after the dude broke into my room last night? And he's like, nope. And she's like, well, but Professor Lorenz, like, don't you remember this and stuff? And he's like, ah, you had a weird bad dream. Happens all the time. So they gaslight the hell out of her. She goes to leave. Foster's going to drive her back to the station. She does call Lorenz out on sleeping in coffins, but he's like, tons of people do that. It's totally normal. They're more comfortable than beds, which is like... Okay. And she's like, well, I guess you're right. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. 
<laughs> so they drive down to the station, and when they leave the house, there's someone digging a grave for Angel in, like, the front yard, and she's like, see, I told you someone died. That guy's digging a grave. And Foster's like, no, he's probably just digging the foundation for a house. And it's, and it's like, like, how? Excuse me, sir, this is, like, right off of the driveway. The driveway. <laughs> like a sick a small rectangular six foot deep hole. Like, how dumb is Foster if supposed to be? Yeah, it's it's a little ridiculous. I'll give you that. So he, Anyways. He drives her down to the station. She this managed, is when she lets him in on her suspicions. Yes, that that Lorenza's behind the dead brides. And he admits that maybe the reason he can't remember what he was saying to her is maybe he was hypnotized. Yeah, and that's where I'm getting the hypnotism thing. Right. It's just... It's just Because it's, as we've established in other movies... Bella Lugosi just innately has the power of hypnotism regardless of what role he's playing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's an established audience convention that everyone would understand. <laughs> exactly. So she goes back to her editor for what is probably the most frustrating scene in the movie for me, which is she's trying to convince him, like, hey, I have this story, and he's like, you're a woman, so why don't you shut up and never say anything and, in fact, just be fired um, for no reason other than I'm grumpy today. We have to fill some time here. So she starts trying to explain to him, like, no, listen to me, like, this stuff really happened. And between the fact that she got gaslit in the morning, she's not really sure if she did see this crazy stuff or if she was actually dreaming. So she's having a hard time convincing her editor. She kind of is so weak on this. Like, she's this tough, hard-boiled reporter everywhere else, but she kind of just collapses into this stereotype of, like, oh, I don't know, who knows what I was thinking, I'm just a woman, like, in this scene, and he's like, yeah, you're just a woman, shut up. And then Dr. Foster shows up and confirms her story uh, to the editor, and of course, now that a man has said it, that clearly means it's true. So they come up with a scheme to draw Lorenz into the open so they can catch him, uh, because this is actually an episode of Batman 66, apparently, <laughs> where they're going to have one of um, Pat's friends, a cigarette girl who wants to be a famous actress, pretend to get married at, like, a fake marriage filled with actors uh, to draw Lorenz out into the open. They do that? They do that. It basically works. Um, except that, like, Lorenz, I think, smells a trap. He manages to get Pat away from Foster. And rather than go after the bait, he knocks Pat out and captures her. As he's getting away, um, he's assisted by Toby, and the cops spot him getting away because, of course, this was a trap, right? So they had cops everywhere, and this cop pulls a gun. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't say anything. No warning, no hesitation. Aims that gun right at eye level and shoots Toby, who, you know, is like two feet tall. So that's... The physics of how that happened, I'm not sure. And Toby's like, Master! Don't leave me! And he's like, what does he say? I don't think he says anything. I think Lugosi just kicks him and gets in the car. <laughs> and it's just like stone cold. Yeah. Drives away. So he's got Pat. Lorenz gets back to the house. And Fog is like, hey, where's Toby? And my other, my one living son. Yeah, and Lugosi's like, ah, I killed him. It's fine. No, no, he says he got left behind. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, you know, same diff. So they get into the laboratory, and clearly this is the last straw for Faga in terms of her employment here. So mid 
operation, she pulls a knife and stabs Lugosi in the back. But not good enough to kill uh, Professor Lorenz, who then turns on her and chokes her out. And it goes right back to, like, trying to do this operation on uh, Pat. But he dies. Well, he can't quite, like, get it, you know, going. His hands aren't working that well. So his wife, the Countess, is screaming at him, like, your hands are shaky! And she... Shoves him out of the way. To do it herself. Yeah, it's great. And she's, like, in, like, grandma mode. Yeah. So she's going to do the operation herself. Pat wakes up in just enough time to see... Uh, the Countess, and push her to the ground. Then she gets up off the table. Then it turns out Faga's just alive enough after being choked out to stab the Countess in the back as well. So now they have matching death wounds. How romantic. The three villains all die on the ground, and upon seeing this, Pat faints. Uh, In time for Foster and the cops to show up and rescue her, and then she and Foster get married. Which I guess means she's not a reporter anymore because you can't be married and have a career. The end. Her editor explicitly says that Ben's not pulling that out of his butt. No. So, I really enjoy Pat. Yes. She's a cool Lois Lane character. Yes. Um, I think the last time we had kind of a spunky reporter was Mystery of the Wax Museum. Or like a girl spunky reporter anyways. Yeah, yeah, to specify. And yeah, like I said, like it was just kind of nice to have our main protagonist be a lady. Well, and and not only that, but like... Semi-competent? It's this weird um, Venn overlap of things we never get. Venn diagram? Yes. Where like, yeah, we very rarely have women protagonists, and yes, we very rarely have women with agency, but in this genre, we also very rarely have protagonists with agency, And here we have all three. Like, the protagonists are very active and Mm. do things to stop the villain as opposed to just kind of sit around, right? Definitely. And I also love that Fega got a thing to do. Yes. You know? Obviously, Bella and the Countess are going to get their comeuppance at the end, but I'm happy that it came at the hands of Fega because, like, her sons are gone. And she's like, why do you treat my sons so bad? And... Dr. Lorenz would just, like, shoo her off, like, go back to work. Yeah, it's, it's actually a nice bit of writing to have, you know, him get his comeuppance from the, the mistreated servants, right? It's, it's, I mean, it's not the most, like, original idea on the planet, but it's just, like, an extra ounce of effort that you aren't expecting in terms of, like, the writing, right? Yeah. Unions. Oh, with your employer. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's a, like, I, I kind of hinted at this with comments earlier, but it's a very comic book plot. Yeah. It's wild and it's bizarre, unless you've read a lot of old-fashioned comic books, in which case, like, this is pretty much exactly what they're like. Like, you could very easily imagine this being an issue of the Lois Lane comic. And it has the whole, like, we're gonna trap the villain by staging, like, a thing to yeah. get him in. Like, that's a very comic book story ending. Even the premise of, like, specifically stealing brides. Yes. Like, why would you specifically steal brides? Okay, so I do have a theory on that. Okay. That they they can't quite say why. Um, but the hint... Virgins? Yeah. Because the hint is that Pat's acceptable, too. Right? And we know she hasn't been married yet, because she gets married to um, Foster at the end. And, you know, if this is a code movie where everyone is an upstanding moral citizen, then you wouldn't have sex before marriage, right? 
Um, I guess there's also, like, a tragic thing to it where, like, the first bride we see, she says, I do. Yeah. I think what this is, is it's a modern take on the Countess Elizabeth Bathory thing, where Mm -hmm. she bathed in virgin's blood to retain her youth. That would explain why she's called the Countess. Yes. That's a really, yeah, I didn't, yeah, you got it, yep. It's just like, the thing that also makes this very comic book-y to me is that it's a movie that assumes a lot of things and just puts them in the movie without questioning them, because that's just how stories go, right? Like, what the fuck is Professor Lorenz's whole deal? Like, like he's this horticulturalist (laughs) who's married to a countess who's 20 years older than him, and they're from Europe. Like, Elizabeth Russell is, like, copying Lugosi's accent. And they've moved to America with their family of, like, weird Dunwich horror, like, deformed servants, and they have this castle with secret passages and dungeons so that they can kidnap brides uh, to... Um, specifically, it's they drain their glands of hormones. That's the explanation we eventually get from Dr. Foster, is that they're, they're draining their glands of hormones, and that's what's keeping the Countess young. And it's just like... Why did what you know? Why does he have a castle? Well, because he's the villain in a horror movie. Why does he have servants? Well, because he has a castle. Why are the servants all like weird and grotesque? Well, because this is a horror movie. Like, there's just a lot of things in this movie that are just like, well, because and like, what's Mike's whole deal? Because all of the other servants yeah, oh, are yeah, he's the only one who lives. Yeah, and all the other servants are related and are weird, <laughs> like just... freak show monsters, and he's just a dude. He's just... You know, they just pulled him off the street. Hey, you want to make a buck? Yeah. And then there's Dr. Foster, who, like, what was Foster doing? What did he think he was doing? Like, he he thinks that the Countess is actually a 20-something-year-old woman and that her illness makes her have, like, the heart rate and the blood pressure of, like, a 70-year-old woman. That's because she's sick. And it, later it's like, no, 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 she actually is that old and she's trying to, like, stay young or whatever. But, like, what... What was Lorenz having Foster do? Like, there's just... This is a movie that its greatest strength is that it's an hour long. Yeah. Because it means that there isn't enough time... To, like, think about what's Yes, happening. exactly, exactly. Dr. Foster is, a, is an idiot. He's just very, very dumb. Yeah. If the movie isn't shot very well... No. And, I mean, part of it is, you know, this isn't restored. It's not held up and kind of any sort of way, so everything is very, very dark, and there are times where it's very difficult to see what's going on. Yeah, it's a little bit of a murky transfer, the one we were watching. But there's no... I was thinking about the... about Invisible Ghost, because that's the first monogram picture Bella did. Obviously, it's a different director, but Invisible Ghost had atmosphere. Yes. And this just has, like, darkness. Well, I think even Devil Bat was better shot than this. Yeah. And, like, honestly, I don't think you'd notice how cheap the movie is so strongly if it wasn't for the fact that it uses stock music. And it doesn't use the stock music well. Like, it has these really kind of hilarious ins and outs. Like, it doesn't fade in or fade out or gradually crossfade or do anything. The stock music just starts and stops. And it always starts and stops when, like, the... The picture cuts, too, so it's always very noticeable when the music just starts out of nowhere and stops out of nowhere very suddenly. And, like, some of it is just so 
weird. Like, when she's um, exploring the dungeon under the house, it's like this weird, like, traversing the desert kind of stock music. (laughs) It's very hilarious. Overall, I'd say that this is, like, a fun time... A fun way to spend an hour. Yeah, it's fun and dumb and disposable. Yeah, I can see why it was covered on Mystery Science Theater. I I think I had more fun with the Devil Bat in terms of, like, spoopy yeah. factor. Yeah, Devil Bat was dumber than this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just thinking about it. Um, But I, I still had a fun time with this. What I liked about this was, like, even though it has this very, like, comic booky plot... It was kind of willing to go for it with the idea of, like, you know, he actually is kidnapping brides to, like, steal their youth for, like, his weird ancient bride or whatever. And, like, he he has this, like, family of, like, weird people as his servants who he really does mistreat and, like, they get killed and, like, people die and, like, you know, he even has a little bit of blood when he gets stabbed. There isn't a weird cop-out Where it's like, oh, this actually was something else the whole time or whatever. Like, you know, the movie is somewhat dedicated to being as dark and gruesome as it can be within the limitations of both the code and the budget. Yes. Right? I feel like it's more the budget (laughs) in this particular film. It's not like, I don't know, Dracula's Daughter, Mm. where it was like really hampered by the code. Right. The things that work against this movie are the things that are, like, standard B-movie problems. Like, there's too many characters, for one thing. Like... not It's not as bad as we've seen, but no. you're right. This movie pushed it a little too far for me. And this is, like, my main difficulty with this movie. Like, I get... I totally understand why you like Pat Hunter. But, like, I cannot figure out if this movie is sexist... Or if just the characters in this movie are sexist. I can't figure out if Pat Hunter is supposed to be, like, a great feminist character. Or if they're just taking that Lois Lane archetype. Because we know that that archetype of, like, the gung-ho girl reporter exists outside this movie. And they're just using it without really understanding it. Because what I can't quite figure out is whether the movie thinks it's a good thing that Pat Hunter is gung-ho and has agency or not. Like, it sometimes feels like the movie is like, no, you shouldn't be this way, you should settle down or whatever. Like, when people are gaslighting her, or when the editor is totally turning down all of her ideas for no reason at all other than he doesn't want to listen to her because she's a woman. Like, you're watching it and I'm like, is this a surprisingly accurate takedown of, like, what it's like to experience like, condescension from men as a career woman? (laughs) Or is this movie actually condescending to its protagonist? You know what I mean? I think the movie itself is condescending because when it needs Pat to be either a damsel in distress or have her be herself not confident in her thoughts. Yes. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, Like, when they need her to be like, oh, what... What did I see last night? Mm-hmm. It yeah, makes like, her do that. Yeah, like she can't, for some strange reason, when she goes to tell the editor her story, she can't put it into words in a way that doesn't make her sound crazy, right? Yeah. She yeah. can't come in and just be like, here's the facts of the story, right? Like, Lois Lane wouldn't come into Perry White's office and be like, yeah, um, I have a really important story to tell you. There was a guy, and he was bald, 
Um, gosh, and was there another guy in a cape? Oh, I just... It's too complicated to explain, Perry. Like... Yeah. So, like, if they... I think you're totally spot on that they're using the archetype without understanding what it is and how to use it. Yeah. Um. Also, if the brides are still alive, which, as we've already pointed out, is unclear, what happened to them? Well, they got them. They, 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 they got him between uh, getting Pat and getting Pat to the altar. Yeah, like, no one ever mentions the kidnapped brides again, right? Like, that's the thing that sets off the story, but, like, by the end of the movie, we do not care about them. We've completely forgotten about them. Yeah. So, ranking. Yeah. Um, where, where do you want to rank the corpse bride? I have a really small range. Sure. I will just point out that the last Monogram 9 picture, The Invisible Ghost, is ranked 33. Mm-hmm. And... Mystery of the Wax Museum, which had the last female spunky reporter type of role Mm -hmm. in a horror movie, is ranked at 47. Okay. I have a very small range for this movie. Uh, The ceiling is number 40, which I don't think this movie goes above Murders in the Room Morgue at 39. I do think it could potentially go above Dracula's Daughter. We've talked about Dracula's Daughter a little bit. I just... That movie's so... I name-dropped it. Yeah, you name-dropped it. That movie's just very confused, you know? In a way that kind of reminds me of this, but for different (laughs) reasons. My floor is number 42. I don't know if this was better in terms of competency, but I definitely enjoyed watching this more than Ghost of Frankenstein. So that's my range, 40 to 42. It's a very, very small little range there. Okay. Where Where were you thinking? I was looking below that. Okay, that's fair. I was looking between... The Dark Eyes of London Mm -hmm. at 44, Mm -hmm. because it had a similar vibe of, um, I mean, he's a detective, not a reporter, but a detective looking for clues. Right. Like, the main reason why we're following Pat is because she's looking for clues. She's been given a story to go do, and she's just, I mean, it makes sense. You have a flower, you're following up with florists, but, like, in Corpse Vanishes, we don't see anything as grisly as the scenes in... Dark Eyes of London. Um, Yeah, no, you're totally right. Like, Dark Eyes of London kind of shocked us with how violent it was at times. Yeah, and and matter of fact about its violence, Mm -hmm. too. And then the lowest I would put it is kind of comparing it with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Mm -hmm. um, Because, you know, spunky female reporter. And as much as Mystery of the Wax Museum was a bit of a disappointment after seeing Dr. X, Mm -hmm. um, it had care put into it. Yeah, for sure. In a way that Corpse Vanishes does not have the same amount of care. No, (laughs) no. The Corpse Vanishes strikes me as a movie where, like, as long as someone didn't, you know... Flub a line? Or, like, trip and fall, Mm -hmm. they were not doing a second take. And it also strikes me as a movie where if, like, anyone on set was like, Oh, hey, boss, um, this part in the script here, it don't make no sense... Like, I'm sure someone turned around and was like, eh, do you think anyone watching this movie is going to be paying attention to that? Like, nobody, you're right, like, is putting this, you know, anything that's good and fun about this movie is coming about in spite of the fact that no one making it gave a shit. Yeah. Now, that being said, above Mystery of the Wax Museum is The Return of Dr. X. Right, which is similarly... Similarly... Something. Right. Uh, and it features a Humphrey Bogart so out of his depth. And as much as I love seeing him flounder a little bit, no one is out of their depth in 
the corpse vanishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, Lugosi knows what he's doing. This is old hat for him. Um, Elizabeth Russell's having a fun time. Everyone else is playing, like, a really understandable archetype that they just know how to do because their characters are one-dimensional. Yeah, the Countess is really hamming it up, and Patricia's doing fine. Yeah. See, my thing with some of these movies down here, like, you know, say what you want about The Corpse Vanishes, at least it's not boring. Yeah. And and it has that over movies like The Mummy. You know, I don't know, does it have that over Invisible Man Returns? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I just know that I had fun watching this. I don't know, did I have more fun than Invisible Man Returns or Return of Dr. X or Mystery of the Wax Museum, all of which I think were tamer than this in terms of, like, what happens in them. That's fair. So what do you think about it compared with Dark Eyes of London, then? I think you're right that Dark Eyes of London is grislier and, like, a bit bleaker. There's something about, like, if Corpse Vanishes is sort of a comic book pulp kind of premise... Dark Eyes of London is a bit more, like, hard-boiled thriller. Yeah, like, there's just a difference in emphasis there that makes Dark Eyes feel a little more serious. Yeah, so then I guess it comes down to, like, what do we prefer in our horror movies? Dark, serious, or, like, pulpy, fun? Well, I like both, but I think if... You know, we're ranking things based on how good they are as horror movies, and we define horror as the ability to instill, you know, fear into an audience. The more serious and more weight that you kind of give to the events in a movie make it more scary, right? The goofier the movie is, the more the movie's clearly just kind of dicking around and having fun with itself. It might make it more enjoyable to watch, but it doesn't make it scarier, right? You kind of leave the theater laughing, rather than leave the theater, you know, gonna have a nightmare that night, right? Yeah, and we have talked a lot about how being scared and laughing at something are, like, two emotions on a spectrum. Yes. You know, between the two. But I think you make a really good point here. So, it sounds like we're putting this below Dark Eyes of London. Yes, um, that's for sure. I'm not sure, do you think it goes above Invisible Man Returns, though? You brought up that... The Corpse Vanishes is not boring. Yeah. Did you find Invisible Man Returns boring? I think that there were some parts in it that were cool. Like, um, I specifically remember, like, there's the murder that happens in, like... That house. The house, and then the lights go off, and then there's, like, a bit of a, a tense moment, right? But the thing about a lot of Invisible Man Returns is that it was large part a repeat of Invisible Man, right? It's it, rehashing a lot of the best hits. Yeah, it was, It was. you know, it's more of the same. Everything that you saw in Invisible Man minus the threat and the menace, right? Like, yeah. it was fine, you know? But there's a reason that it's way down here at number 45, you know, in the middle of the list, basically. Yeah, okay. So that was kind of my feeling. Like, I think if you, if you asked me which I would rather watch again, I think I would pick Corpse Vanishes. Like, it's tough because I think Invisible Man Returns is probably better made from a craft competency Even just for the, you know, special effects. Oh, yeah, the special effects in Invisible Man Returns were great. But, like, in terms of just entertainment factor and enjoyability as a story, like, it was just kind of, okay, it was fine. Then I'm happy to put Corpse Vanishes 
above Invisible Man Returns. Okay, then. So, entering the list at number 45 uh, on our list, which now has 88 films, uh, which basically puts this right below the midpoint now. Huh. Um, we have The Corpse Vanishes from 1942, directed by Wallace Fox. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you feel like we need to reconsider this or any other ranking, drop us a line there. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. And I will just mention, because Tumblr's been in the news... We will continue having our site on Tumblr, but if you do want to keep more in touch with us and be more engaged, Twitter's definitely the better platform. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play, and is available on any podcasting app if you subscribe through our RSS feed. If you listen to the show on a platform that allows you to make a rating or a review, we would really appreciate you doing that. It's one of the things that helps podcasts get seen by new listeners. Another way to help out the show is to just tell a friend about the show, whether that's on social media or over a coffee someday. Just mention that there's this cool horror movie podcast that you listen to. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. Another thing we'd really appreciate is if you took the time to head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for just a dollar a month. Uh, So for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support the show, uh, make sure that we can pay our hosting fees and keep putting out a show, you know, at this quality level or better if uh, we get more patrons. At the $5 level, you get access to bonus audio. Uh, This includes bits cut from previous episodes, whether it's um, jokes or tangents or long stretches of facts that needed to be cut. Uh, There's a lot of really good stuff there in kind of the Patreon archive. When you become a $5 patron, you get access to all the previous uh, bonus content that we've put up in addition to new stuff coming out. And at the $10 level, you'll get a new horror short story once a month uh, written by me. There's some really cool stuff there. Uh, I especially am proud of the story I did for October, uh, which is about Frankenstein and Dracula meeting. Um, Another thing that we did in October was basically a whole EP of spooky electronic music by Sarah, uh, and that's all up on the Patreon to be accessed by patrons of any level. So check all that out at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. And like I hinted in the beginning part of the show, if we reach our first goal of $150 a month, we will start doing horror-adjacent episodes that will be available for everyone. And if we suddenly, after this, get reach that level, I will force Ben to watch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 <laughs> episode on The Corpse Vanishes, and we'll talk about it. Um, that is my guarantee to you if after this episode we reach that. If if between the launch of this episode and the following episode of that one week, if we reach that goal, that's, that's my guarantee to you. That is quite an impressive goal, Sarah. But uh, who knows? Our audience can accomplish anything if they put their minds to it. That's terrifying. <laughs> what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week we are watching PRC's 
attempt to cash in on the Wolfman. It's um, The Mad Monster, starring George Zuko, directed- Zuko? Yes. Does he have a scar in his face? No. It's directed by PRC co-founder Sam Neufeld, and it uh, was actually the subject of the third episode of the first season of Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> uh, that's The Mad Monster, next week on Scream Scene. All right, well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.